After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland is out with an absolutely debilitating cold, so instead of sniffling on the line here, he is going to have a little bit of a rest. But he did review the film that we're going to be talking about on his Instagram. You can check that out, at iCram. Spoiler alert, he really dug it, I really dug it, and our guest, who picked it, obviously really dug it as well. I am talking to Sandy Jobin-Bevins. Hey, Sandy, how you doing? I am fantastic. Yes, I do dig this movie for sure. <laughs> now, what movie did you pick and why did you pick it? Well, it's an interesting thing because it's kind of called two things. Uh, I love a man in uniform and also sometimes just called man in uniform. So it, I don't know why they have two titles, but it basically has two titles. I didn't pick it because it has two titles. I um, picked it because when I was in university in Manitoba, I was in film studies and uh I just was into seeing every movie, so I went down and uh, saw this movie with a bunch of other film nerds, and uh, I remember just sticking with me, really loving it. It's really spectacular. Now, you're a comedy guy. You yeah, uh, you came up yeah. through Second City. You're on a yeah. bunch of incredibly funny shows. I was totally expecting you to bring like one of Canada's funniest films, something <laughs> like from the archives I hadn't heard of before, and you yeah. bring this movie that is basically the Joker if it was a good movie. So it's fascinating to me this film even exists and just how relevant and timely it is, even if it definitely sits in that like 90s thriller zone. Yeah, it's it's pretty true. Like, first of all, I mean, originally seeing this movie, I had no appreciation of budgets and how it is to make a movie and what it was like to make movies, especially in Canada. And uh, now watching it again, I'm like, wow, it's a pretty big accomplishment. I mean, that op the opening of the show, there's a helicopter landing on a street in Toronto. Like, uh, the, to be able to do that on any kind of budget now, I don't know if you can do it. So I, I was immediately just struck by the production value of it actually being pretty damn good. Sandy, uh, that was actually the very first note I have in my thing. Yeah. Is I'm like, where did they get the helicopter from? And did they blow uh, their entire budget on this opening? It's so crazy. It is so crazy. But yeah, no, exactly. Right away. So I mean, and I didn't think I had that appreciation. So I looked at it with a different eye, I think, now that I've worked in film and television. But uh, uh, but rather than when I was a student, I thought every movie should be like that and no problem to spend money. And now looking at it, you just get yeah, very shocked. I, my overall feeling, I don't want to be like totally spoiling, but I did feel like it, it does it does generally hold up to my expectations at least. So I'm not like on this discussion with you now going, I'm so embarrassed I picked that. I'm so excited, <laughs> but I'm so excited that you both loved it. And uh, I could pull this out for you. This is exactly the reason why we do this show. So we can find this stuff that's like you kind of have to dig through and be like, this was a big deal. It went to Cannes. It launched David Wellington. It's one of Tom yep. McCannis's first films. Like, it's a big deal in terms of Canadian history. And I hadn't heard of it before, which is ludicrous. Nuts. But yeah, incredible movie. His performance is phenomenal and the direction is great. And I guess he won I looked it up, but I didn't know this, but he won the Genie. He won the Genie for Best Actor for this movie as well. He did. It also got nominated for Best Picture. Did not win. I did not look up what won against it, but, you know, who knows what it was. It was 93, so uh, and there was a lot of stuff up and coming then. Like, that was yeah. all the nouveau wave of Toronto filmmakers, so yep. who knows yep. who it could have been. But just before we get started, first and foremost, this is a very difficult film to find, so uh, people may yes. need to dig for this one. Your public library may 
may possibly have a copy of it. Uh, if you still have a video store in your city, it may have it. So uh, just do a little bit of shuffling for this one. But uh, just for people in the audience, give us a brief description of what this film is about. First of all, I think, and I may be wrong about this, I just want to throw this out there, I think possibly 32 short films won uh, that year. Oh. Might have won that year. Might have been, if it was the right year, if I got it right. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, or 94. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. What is the movie about? Okay. <laughs> so it's basically, uh, there's an actor, and he's uh, got a day job, and he's struggling to get going, and uh, he gets a part in a cop movie called Crime Wave. He then really owns the part, asks to take home the costume, then becomes basically obsessed with being this cop. He then starts to try to be a real cop. Also, he gets pretty obsessed with his uh, co-star and then just slowly starts to disintegrate when he sees what the real world is all about. I think that's a pretty good description. Pretty dark and pretty, there's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. There's like there's like about one laugh, maybe two in the whole, <laughs> whole movie. Definitely not a comedy. Mark Wilson, who plays the uh, costume guy in that movie, the Second City alum, has like two funny lines. I think he's the only guy that makes anyone laugh in that movie. Otherwise, it's pretty stark and depressing, I would say. But that's pretty much it. It's just, you know, if you're an actor, you know, it's, it's interesting because you're like, what would it be like if I just like really got into it and decided to be that character in real life for a couple of days and what would happen? It's one of the very few films I think I've seen that a man is faced with the idea of power and being able to like grasp a little bit because power and men is like 90% of American cinema, yeah. <laughs> possibly international yeah. cinema. But this one explores it in a way I hadn't seen before in that when he is faced with what happens having that level of power actually means. It doesn't destroy him in the way that he goes down the path of corruption. It destroys him in the way that he looks into the abyss. The abyss looks back and he goes, oh, no, this isn't for me. I now need to completely end myself. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I've never seen anything like that before of someone being completely destroyed by their own power in a way that they now understand that they couldn't handle it and they are lesser. Yeah, that's really true. I, that was like when I was in my early 20s watching this movie, I didn't understand any of that. I only thought like the most base level of wow, wouldn't it be interesting if you're an actor that just decided to play a character for two days? But then watching it now, when you have a little more maturity, perhaps that's when you really do see those levels of it and sort of go, there is a little bit of a different way that he's destroyed. You're exactly right. It's completely entirely by himself, right? All the things that he's done, really. And then I also have to say, I always remember the dad having a kind of having a bigger influence. Obviously, it showed that he has a terrible home life, but I'd totally forgotten that thing that where he's like, his he, lottery tickets, and if he gets the number 44, he's like, burn it, get rid of it, never the number 44. Did they ever explain it, though? They never really explained why he had that obsession with 44. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, I remember that. I just, they don't explain why, and I think no. it's one of those things, it's just because so many things are horrible in Tom McCamus's life, and he has <laughs> no, he has no control over everything. So all of this is just, because he's an actor, which is like the least controlled profession in the world. You yeah, have yeah. You have no control over anything. His father is horrible. He lives with him. He controls everything. He makes him go get the lottery tickets. And if he screws yeah. something up, it all goes to hell. He's terrible with women. Even in his own, his safe banking job, he gets held up in one of the weirdest, most surreal yes. things I've ever seen. Yes. I'm like, what sort of Gotham-esque world are we in right now? Yeah, it's, uh, this Marilyn Monroe-dressed woman breaks into a bank. I know it was very bizarre. It's very, very strange. strange. Well, we'll get into David, David Wellington and his filmmaking in a minute. Sure, he's sure. he's interesting. But yeah, he just has absolutely no no power. And every single point of his life is constructed to reinforce the fact that he just wants to be a fascist. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Exactly right. He finally discovers it. exactly <laughs> it's going to be fascist. I actually caught Cameron's uh, tweet where he said that exact thing. A guy that just wants to become a fascist, essentially. And especially even like the costume design in this is so good where everybody's in like the slick, all the costumes 
cops are like in these slick, squeaky black uniforms, yeah. which they could hear you come from a mile away. Police brutality is apparently a common thing. Like the world that they've built, David Wellington has built in this. I think he wrote this by himself, didn't he? I think you're right. You might be right about he that. He did. Yeah, there's no other co-writer. He, The world he's built is this very like Batman, Gotham-esque. There's danger around every turn, but it's still Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that that's another thing about watching that is the time capsule of it, just watching the how Young Street has changed and all the backdrop and everything. And like I think I think their date is in uh, Peter Pan at uh, it's uh, Peter and Queen Street. I was trying to look look I think I saw the black bull behind her. You know, like that stuff is amazing, the time capsule of that. So as as dark as it is, I'm still looking for all the, the stores in the background. Still trying, know, trying to find all the famous uh, landmarks in Toronto. Oh, we do uh, that all the time. It's yeah, it's just something we do, <laughs> especially when they have like long like music sequences. It's like, oh, that's what Young Street used to look like. I mean, going down the roads like ninety percent. The joy of that film is seeing what Toronto used to look like. Oh my God, it's pretty dirty in the '90s still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get a little bit into David Wellington and his kind of background. How much do you know about him, Sandy? Uh, I don't know a ton. I remember I remember being around. He was shooting a lot of commercials in Toronto, and uh, he was shooting movies and commercials. And I remember that the big thing on him was that he was sort of the considered to be the the only one who could do both. Really, the other, other had to make a. Everyone else had to make a choice, but he was gonna. He was the master who could do both. But I was racking my brain to, to figure out if I'd actually ever done a commercial with him. I was trying to figure it out. I, I it's possible. Uh, when he was, you know, doing commercials, I was definitely auditioning for them. I can't remember if I got into any of his, but yeah, that was his world then. I, I knew him when I got to Toronto. Of him in Toronto for sure. Not only because of this movie, but he was pretty big. Well, he directed the last season of Kids in the Hall, was something he was yep. known for. And now, of course, he does everything from Orphan Black, Saving Hope, Mary Kills People. Um, he produced almost all of Rookie Blue and Saving Hope, I believe. This is a little confusing for me because I have seen this film advertised as his debut feature. But mm. his he's got two, at least two features before this, from what I can tell. One of them uh, being his very first film, The Carpenter, which I've seen on a number of lists from 1988 as being this like absolutely incredible horror slasher film, which really? I Never yeah oh which I found a copy of and I watched it. <laughs> um, and thematically, it's really interesting to see. Like, he's clearly got some things that he likes to kind of play with. So The right. Carpenter is a film about a woman who has some sort of mental illness. You don't know what. It was the 80s, so everyone's just crazy in generic yeah. ways. Yeah. But this woman has issues with her husband, and uh, she is placed in some sort of care facility. And then he comes to get her, and there may or may not be a carpenter living in her house. You never are entirely clear on if this guy is a figment of her imagination or not, who previously owned the house and killed everybody um, yeah and then she like starts killing people but it may be him there's a whole thing going on here but it it also becomes very much a film about power and about the dynamic between men and women and what the role of men is in women's lives and you wow. get a lot of that in in I mean it's not that complex because it's basically like an 80s let's get some money thriller movie yeah. but that's kind of what the, the tropes are playing with and you get a lot of that but more refined in man in uniform. Okay, interesting. So that's definitely something he was 
well interested in exploring or obsessed about, for sure. And then also looking, I mean, at his later television work and the stuff he wrote later, it's, yeah, uh, yeah why why do we bite into these things of, okay, we're going to explore this and then develop it, but the later film may be the one that's more recognized, say, as my debut. Then to think that he went on to direct like Kids in the Hall, I, I don't know if that's just because he was such a good director. They thought he, well, they thought he could do commercials in film. Why couldn't he do a sketch comedy as well? I think easily. <laughs> and here's, here's my question for you, though, and this is a weird link that I do not have confirmation okay. on, but I'm curious about it. Now, the fictional television show in the film that yeah. he gets the role on is called Crime Wave. Yeah. And John Pays's movie from uh, Winnipeg was called Crime Wave. And John Pays was definitely uh, around at that time and yeah. uh, also worked on Kids in the Hall. And I'm wondering if that's an homage to him. Oh, well, I would say I'm going to say yes. Based on what you just said, that's a perfect, uh, perfect argument that that's probably absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> I'll go with it. Yeah, yeah. At any point, did you think it was weird that you were watching an entire open opening to a television show in a feature film? <laughs> well, you know, you could definitely tell it was tragically hip music that was playing as a theme song, "Crime Wave," for yes. sure. <laughs> uh, no, I love that. I absolutely love that. That's the best. I think I love when people take the time to actually create. Uh, well, a fake cop show that also has a that you know within a, sh- a movie about it. I mean, just I love that. I love that detail when a director or writer writes in that. You know, we're not just going to see the credits or the opening. We actually may even see part of the episodes. I love that. And I love that when that lives within that reality of that world. Uh, they did a pretty amazing job. It looks pretty good. It looks pretty much like a terrible uh, cop show uh, in the 90s. Um, I immediately thought of like in the heat of the night and all those kind of shows. So, yeah, it was like this is one yeah. step down from Hill Street Blues easily. Yeah. This is like oh, yeah. we talked about how great the Tom McCamus performance is in this. Uh, what do you think it is about it that really sells the descent? It's that he's so serious and intent. And I also think that I like that. I love that. He, it's funny thing is, I actually kind of thought he became so obsessed with his lines that in that first part where he was about to audition and he's so obsessed with his lines alone, that was the perfect like jumping off point for me. Um, and even when he goes to the bank and he has to hold up the perfect tie, becoming that kind of perfectionist early on, for some reason that, that was perfect for me as an entry into, can I now just take my wardrobe home? Which I, by the way, I've never thought of asking. <laughs> I figure they just say no, but this person said, okay. After a little struggle, she's okay. And you know, it also felt like an actor who maybe doesn't, you already sense that he had never really booked anything. When he's finally given this opportunity in front of the director and, you know, reading sides with an actress, which, you know, is not reality. You would never have someone standing there that you get to throw around in your audition generally. It's always, you know, off camera with a reader. But that was a stretch. But the, but the fact that his uh, actions were pretty violent with her, like all the intensity that was building, I think, came out of like frustration. So it's like you, he really sold the intensity and slow build of frustration just by starting out with that uh, choice to just be obsessive over simple lines for his audition. So I believed it. He really believed that he was like on the edge of teetering and then snapping but I was, I was i remember thinking man you finally got a role that's pretty good like it was like if that's your first role you're in a lot of it that, that tv show crime wave so why blow it now but i mean it's when he went off the deep end when he finally got a job he lost it isn't that what always happens you spend all the money you go actor you never work again yeah that's, that's it. yeah <laughs> 
steal a uniform, be obsessed, uh, continue to do bad things, and you never work again. I think there's more to that story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like the union might have stepped in because he was getting incredibly physical with people without, like, that's the other thing I find fascinating about this is how physical he's able to be with people and how far, even when he's in this fictional world, he's pushing people and doing things to them. And that's considered acceptable and good performance until he just yeah. crosses the line slightly. Yeah. And I, I, I like, and I really, really liked this when he was seeing, like, in the scene where he's first shooting and he's throwing the guy against the wall like the audition scene he's, he's putting the cuffs on him and all that stuff when the director is uh, I guess Daniel Kyber's the director he, when the director goes uh, great job guys he turns around like was that okay like he immediately switches back to like the desperate actor like was that okay it's a really good job like he was so even when the scene where he's walking down the street and the cops roll by in the car and they do a little honk and the guy waves to him and the wave or thumbs up or whatever to him the, co- the real cop his look back and that little like feeble little wave, like, hi guys, was so great. It was just like, he's trying to be this intense guy, but he can't be, he can't leave this like desperate for uh, acceptance actor or desperate for acceptance son behind. And I thought those those little tweaks in that performance are pretty great. Ugh, the stuff I always have issues with when I watch these, like, you know, man descends into madness. So I'm watching Scarface. I'm watching, you know, yeah. anything made by Scorsese. The issue <laughs> I always have is how I, as, you know, white woman from, from suburban Canada originally, how am I supposed to access this character and enjoy them when I'm just watching them continue to do heinous things or descend further and further? I had a similar issue with Breaking Bad. And mm-hmm. Tom McCamus's performance in this, he is pathetic but he's pathetic in a way that you actually feel bad for him oh yeah that's why i'm saying he finally got a good part and then he blew it like you feel bad you're like dude your career you're just getting started you know you were so close and but there's something about him as an actor that he's not playing that but he's not playing into the patheticness he's genuinely trying to pull himself out and pull himself out and and fight against it but he just can't do it and you and there's a reason why he ends his life at the end because he realizes yeah. oh I am a complete and utter failure and I've taken a life and I'm never going to be able to live with myself after that oh, and exactly. that's just such and, and when you see the realization it all makes sense and I think if it was anyone playing that part just a little more aggressive or a little more pathetic you would not be on board with him either way it would be almost intolerable yeah because if he's too whiny and pathetic you get tired of that. And if he's over aggressive, you wouldn't believe it. It yeah. just wouldn't be believable. You're absolutely right. But yeah, he does that perfect job. You're right. Of just that being on that balance between, uh, so he's likable still. Oh my God. And you're still, oh my God. And he's with the woman and it's like, and I love her line. And she says, I think, I think I like the way things are now. Like when he's basically asking her out and he's like, she's just like, I think I like the way that things are right now. Like I'm not going any further with this. It's such a direct line that he just can't accept, but Oh, brutal. Yeah. Oh, and well, that scene where they're in the coffee shop together and he is very adamant that like, no, you just need to give me a chance. And she tells him to go screw himself. Um, I have not seen, especially from the 90s, a scene that is so well written with a woman being that direct and that clear with someone saying, "Uh, this is not something I'm even remotely interested in and you are not going to touch me right now or ever again. This is not going to happen. And I don't think I've seen that before. That was really cool. No, I, I I would agree with you, and like it's such a great build to when he grabs your arm. That's oh enough. yeah, You're like that's not that's that's it. Yeah, and she wins the scene. She does win the scene. She absolutely does. We are actually at favorite moments already. Time flies. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What was your What was your favorite moment of this, Sandy? Uh, the favorite moment. Well, the the story that's told in the coffee shop with the guy. Uh, it's Kevin Tice's name. Satigue, the uh, the direct the uh, actor who comes in to play this cop, the blonde cop who takes him to the coffee shop, and he tells that. Story. Story about the sort of hostage taking where the guy's holding the dog 
and he's that whole monologue is like there's a there's your genie moment because i know he won the genie for supporting actor i believe but he he just has he's not in the movie that much but he has that great story about like the woman got out of the way but the guy's holding the dog up and he's like that just shot the guy through the dog like <laughs> that is a, that for me is a great moment in that movie like that's well written obviously that's the, your moment when you win an award for it quite honestly I also love the scene with with uh, when the, the guy Albert Schultz when he drives up and you know he's trying to give me a ticket, give me a ticket. That's a great scene too, where he just can't do it and he gets so mad at himself that he can't just be a tough guy for two more seconds and he tries to he does the whole scene back playing with himself about how he should have reacted to that guy and then should beat him up or whatever. But I would say between the for for as far as great moments, I think that's a pretty that's a scene I remembered especially from watching it for years ago. But I'd kind of forgotten about that monologue about that uh, guy who was waving the dog at the cop, and the cop's just like, "I shot the guy right through the dog." <laughs> that is, that's a pretty great scene too. The dialogue's quite good um, in that movie, so a lot of those are dialogue driven for sure too. Well, I mean, the whole movie just has this fantastic quality that we had in '90s thrillers, like a la, like Die Hard, kind of pushed it, where there's like an, uh, a heightened back and forth, but it's edgy and it's clever and it's quick, and but it's still really dirty and gritty. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Yeah. Any other favorite moments? I mean, th- those are those for me, the ones that stick out for sure. There's a, a lot of uncomfortable moments. <laughs> it wasn't just great moments, uncomfortable moments. It's too many to list. Yeah, it, it does such a great job of like going back and forth between like he knows exactly when to when the audience's tolerance is going to break for sitting in something that's just not OK. Yeah. And exactly especially right. moments of humiliation, which he is humiliated over and over again, which I actually think is more often than not harder to watch than violence. I would think so. And the thing, yeah, the thing we've touched on a couple of times, but yeah, thinking back is just like, when does the audience stop cheering for this guy? And when yeah. do you cheer for him? You know, it's those are the balance, those moments that go between them. Yeah. And especially if you're an actor, it really hits home when off the top when he's just like so desperately trying to get a job and to do a good job of it. Yeah, but we all know that guy who goes a little overboard, and it's like, yeah, we don't want to play with him anymore. There's a reason why. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have roommates like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, me too. It's the worst. (laughs) I think my favorite moments are any moments when he's on the show, because it's so interesting to see, and this is why he's such a good actor, is when a good actor is trying to do bad acting, it doesn't work because we know how to be good actors. But when he's doing his lines and they're coming out stilted in the audition or they're coming out stilted in the take, I just think that's so masterful because, yeah, that's he's not a good actor. He's a great actor portraying a a not good actor. And that's you never lose that moment. It's amazing. And I love that. I do love that when he's like, you know, should I cuff him? And then the next scene when he's in real life, should I cuff him? He just has those. He has knows the lines from the show that he just keeps using in real life. I think that's fantastic the way to use those. And they don't overuse it. They just use it enough that you're like, oh, he only knows the lines he's learned as the actor playing a cop to use in real life as a cop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the scenes that's the most intense that like genuinely upset me and I had to pause it was when he goes to Bridget Backo's house and he's uh, outside the door and there's neighbors coming out to check on her. And he because he's in the uniform, he's like, everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Everything's fine. And she's just freaking out. And then he he ha- he tells her his whole fantasy and yeah. asks her if he wants to she wants to carry it out. And it's just like. This is so uncomfortable and so upsetting and I kind of love it because it's so well done that I have that icky, gross, terrible feeling, but it's not over the top that I want to run away. No, absolutely not. I kind of forgotten that that part of the movie. I I remember he went to her house, but then when he asks, when he tells her like, you know, I have this dream where we just (laughs) kiss and then we kill each other or kill ourselves. I was like, whoa, I've totally forgot about that. 
And the, the, and then when later on when he's leaving the film set, and is it later on? When is it when he says I'm leaving? That's after that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's because yeah. he goes on the Thank final you. big spree with the guy. Yeah. There you go. Thank yeah. you for saying that. I was like, okay, that timeline makes more sense. Yeah. I was trying to figure out because even when when she when she's when he's leaving it for leaving the set and she's he's like I just want to be friends and she's like so mad at like over him. Forget it. Never ever. Uh, I was like I was like I seem like there's more to being her being mad and like oh there you go that's the scene where i'm like oh there's why she really hates this guy because he totally like barges into her apartment all that crap i was waiting for that to happen and it really shows he's completely lost his mind oh he's it's just it's absolutely horrific but she plays it so beautifully because again a lesser film would have had her go hysterical or freak out or run away or hit him in a moment of violence but she's so calm and she's just so with him and it's such an intense moment it's really a remarkable piece of acting it's a remarkable scene uh you are in fact correct that that was uh 32 short films about glenn gould and you can't fight that so (laughs) (laughs) yeah good choice yeah i think that's that's all right but um kevin teague did win for i love a man in uniform as well so yeah that's it kevin American actor and then so many things he's such a good villain in so many things uh, well thank you so much Sandy how can people check out your work my, my wife and I host a game show called just like mom and dad so mostly for parents mostly parents and kids are checking out my work these days and then the uh, occasional uh, comedy show around Toronto and uh, we're working in development on bringing hilarious house of Frightenstein back <gasps> show so that show may be something you can check out my work when it eventually airs ah oh, amazing we love that show very much fantastic sandy and for uh, ourselves you can find myself at uh, atlas shrimpton that's the masculine shrimpton on the twitters cameron maitland you can find him at cam fest uh, on twitter and on instagram as well as at icram where he rates and reviews every film he's seen and then for the podcast you can check us out at rcm pod come talk to us and if you're not donating to our patreon yet come on guys Come on. Come on. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. (laughs) I think that's just about everything. So, Sandy, let's go get a moose head. All right, let's do it. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.